And please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 21. We come now to what I think is fair to say is the second most anticipated birth in the Bible. Nothing obviously tops the birth of Jesus Christ. But this birth is certainly anticipated on a high level. This is coming, really the, the origin of it isn't just when God revealed himself to Abraham in Genesis 12. This dates back to Genesis 3 when God promises to send a seed from the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, forecasting to the coming of the Messiah. And really the whole Bible, the whole Old Testament anyways, builds up to the coming of Christ. And of course the New Testament is the testimony of Christ having come. Uh, so you have in Genesis 3 this forecast. But to this point, we don't know the specifics of how the seed will come. But when we're introduced to Abraham, now we get a glimpse. God progressively tells us more and more about his story as it builds up to Christ. And so we get to Genesis 12, many years after Genesis 3, and he speaks to Abraham and calls him out of the Ur of the Chaldees and promises he and Sarah that they will have a son and reaffirms uh, that promise multiple times. 25 years from the time God first told Abraham and Sarah they would have a son to the time of its fulfillment that we come to today. That's 25 years filled with trials and tribulations that elapsed. Now this day finally comes. Here now as I read God's holy word, this is Genesis 21, the first 21 verses. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son, who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman and her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy. 
and hold him fast with your hand, for I will, take, I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave, it, gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, all that we have come through in the book of Genesis to this point, this passage about the much-anticipated birth of Isaac comes across so matter-of-fact. Please impress upon us the various layers of meaning and importance in this passage. The overriding theme, of course, is your faithfulness to your promises because you prove yourself faithful to your word over and over and over again, we too can have confidence in the promises you have made to us. Please convict and encourage us, your people today, as we read and study your holy word. I pray this through Christ. Amen. Tom Petty was right when he said that waiting is the hardest part. That's true for humanity. It's something unique to us as creatures bound by time, especially fallen creatures bound by time. It's tough for us to wait. It can go fast, it can go slow, but it can sometimes just be torturous waiting for something you know or you're anticipating. We had one of those instances in the last year of our lives as a family when about a year ago, AJ had a plan to ask his then-girlfriend to marry him. And he and Sherry and I were talking about different creative ways he might do it because she pretty much, she knew it was coming, but how would he pull it off? So she was in Chicago doing an internship through her college with a couple roommates there, and AJ being here in Kansas City, uh, we decided to go to Chicago and try to surprise her. And he thought that I, being in Chicago 30 years ago, would know Chicago now. At any rate, I still thought it was adventurous and liked the plan he had. And so I uh, took him, and we went down together the day, uh, drove one day, and then got to Lincoln Park, where there is this pavilion called the honeycomb. It's a place where people take pictures all the time. It's lit up. It looks like a honeycomb. And the plan was for her roommates to lead her there at about 8.30 p.m. AJ would be hiding in some bushes, and hopefully no one would overreact when he jumped out of the bushes. It's Chicago, so I was was nervous. Um, I got up on a bridge behind this thing to try to film the whole thing, assuming, of course, she's going to come from the other direction. So there I am up on the bridge, waiting and waiting. It took an hour and a half for her to actually get there from the time we thought. But once I saw her coming, I texted him, and he gets in the bush. It worked almost perfectly until I heard the voices behind me coming, and she was coming with her roommates right by me on the bridge. Now, what a way to ruin your sons. So I got like this, and just kind of went like this. She said later that she saw some creepy old guy on the bridge (laughs) watching this whole thing. Could have blown the whole thing. But it worked perfectly. She went down, and A.J. popped out, asked her to marry uh, him, and she said yes. And then from that point, the wait is on. Now, the wait would have been longer for them in some sense, but as far as them actually now having a date, June 17th. Now, for the guys, that's no big deal, June 17th. But from her perspective, all sorts of stuff had to come together. And because it was going to be in Phoenix, we had all sorts of people here to try to bring there and orchestrate the things you do on the groom side of it from, from here, not being from Phoenix. So there was all these details, but it seems so far away. In fact, it really seems slow to us how long it was taking. 
It just, all these things coming together, the anticipation of it, and the waiting was awkward about in the way that it would be fast sometimes, long other times. Then the last three weeks, it just went right into the date. And that's the nature of waiting for us. It's, it can be very long and torturous. It can be the wait is over before you know it. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, uh, looking back at your life and thinking how fast the last 10 years went. But you're looking ahead and thinking, boy, the next 10 years will take so long. Waiting for us is a uniquely human experience. And we have to see this from the angle of Sarah and Abraham to appreciate a 25-year wait. But in fact, it's not just 25 years. Think of Sarah for a moment. She was 65 years old, still had no children. That's when God spoke to Abraham about leaving the Ur of the Chaldees. So she had her whole life up to that point of anticipation as a married woman who never could have a child, it appears. Then she's promised a child at age 65, and it takes 25 more years for it actually to come to pass. For Abraham and Sarah, the waiting for God's promise, taking 25 years, was probably much more difficult just because of what they've already been through in their wait. There are times along the way when both Abraham and Sarah thought God had forgotten them. They even tried to take matters into their own hands by fleshly means to use a custom of the day that caused more problems with Ishmael being born to Hagar. Now I want to point out to you as we head into the passage, this particular passage, there's more than, me, more than meets the eye. There are three layers of meaning at least in this passage that I want all of us to gather. And if you're new to the Bible, there are some very foundational terms and concepts that will serve you well as you start to study more. Earlier, we read from our confession of faith something of the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. This, act, this story actually will teach us something about this. And the New Testament refers to this episode, and I'll go back to that at the end. We'll look through the natural reading of it, what happened in time and space, and then what it means in the different levels and layers of meaning. Obviously, on the most basic level, these are people who believe in God. They're trusting in God. Obviously, there's failure in their belief, but there's enough belief that God's given them that they lay hold of his promise for a Savior. They're Christians, you could say. Yet, they had to think at some point God had forgotten his promises. So at base level, we see from this episode that we can count on God's promises, even when it seems as though he has forgotten us. Now, with regard to those layers of meaning, the first layer, it's a real human story about two believers waiting for God to fulfill a promise. The second layer of meaning has to do with the story of the Old Testament, God preserving and continuing the seed who would become the Messiah. That's the second layer of meaning in the big picture. But there's a third layer of meaning where this episode becomes an allegory or a picture, a symbol of God's two major covenants, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, typified with Hagar and Ishmael representing the covenant of works, trying to earn salvation through our own means, to answer God's promise by doing it our way. And then Sarah and Isaac who are symbols of the covenant of grace, God's promise provided by him supernaturally. So we'll see all these layers at work, but let's walk through the passage together. I divide it into two because that's simple enough. You have the birth of Isaac in the first seven verses, and then you have the separation of Ishmael in verses 8 to 21. Follow with me, starting at verse 1, as we see the covenant promise 
fulfilled in the birth of Isaac after these 25 years of waiting. It says in verse 1, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised, she conceived. This is similar language that is used with Hannah giving birth to Samuel, and then even somewhat like what is said about Mary. Those are three key, verses, key births in the Bible for sure. Jesus, the most important, but then there's also here Isaac, and there's Samuel to Hannah. This is a supernatural birth, make no mistake. It's not a virgin birth like Mary, Mary having Jesus, but this is a woman who had never been able to have a child. Now she's at age 90, and God's going to give her a child. Interesting, as I did a little bit of study on this because I had wondered, uh, what, are, what is this like scientifically? What examples are there of a woman having a child at this age? In the U.S., there are about 120 births a year to women who are 50 or older. And in those births, almost all of them, not everyone, but almost all of them come through in vitro fertilization. And then when you search further to even find the oldest on record now, granted there could be babies born somewhere else that don't have records for it, but the oldest recorded mother to date to conceive and bear a child is 74 years old. However, that also was through in vitro fertilization. The oldest recorded age of conception by natural means was a 62-year-old woman in 1887 who lived in England, and she gave birth to triplets. Yes. So we got time. From her perspective, obviously, there's no way this is happening. A 90-year-old woman, all natural constraints, uh, you would imagine, to be in place for someone this, this old having a child. But God's promises are not constrained by these natural constraints, including an aging woman whose body's well past childbearing. In fact, he chooses this means to demonstrate how this is all from him. God is not constrained by a sense of waiting either. He's in no hurry to accomplish what his will is, to accomplish his promises. All things happen exactly when he ordains. And you see that in verse 2, the way it's worded, Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Um, he had a year before or so, said that the baby would be born in this time frame, and a lot even happened in that year. A great danger happened to Abraham and Sarah because of Abraham and his scheming, as we saw last week. But it was at the time of which God had spoken. He fulfilled his promise just like he said when he willed it to be so. He doesn't always tell us, in fact, most of the time doesn't tell us when these promises he makes will be accomplished. But he says they will be accomplished. And this episode certainly bolsters God's faithfulness. The baby came exactly when God said he would, and this is the nature of his promises. God keeps every one of his promises, and the Bible is a testimony of our promise-keeping God. Think for a moment, what promises do you have as a believer that you can draw from this account and know God is faithful? First of all, God promises you salvation in Christ. If you believe on him, you are promised eternal life. He promises that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Jesus promised access to the Father through him. God promises his peace for those who are in Christ. Jesus said, believe in him and you will never die. This is his promise. He promises to love you and never forsake you. 
God promises a way out of temptation when they come. He gives strength to the weary, and he promises to increase the power of the weak. He has a definite plan for you, and they are not to harm you, but to give you a future and a hope. These are God's promises to his people, to you. The Lord will go before you and be with you throughout your life. The Lord will provide for your needs. As we seek first his kingdom, all these things will be added to us. Our needs, that's what he promises. Our daily bread, he tells us to ask him and rely upon him for. Those who seek the Lord will lack no good thing. Jesus said he will give us rest for our weary souls. This is a promise. He promises if you lack wisdom, ask him for it and he'll give you it. That's his promise. God assures you that he hears your prayers, every one of them, and he cares about all of them. Jesus has promised that he will come again for us. God assures you a place in the new heavens and the new earth, the heavenly Canaan. That's a promise to you, citizens of heaven. God promises to finish the good work that he has begun in you. He will not leave you where you are. God promises that his kingdom will come. Believing the promises of God, now Abraham, in verse 3, called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Isaac means the one who laughs or the one who rejoices or just plain laughter. He called him laughter because so much laughing happened around. Remember Abraham laughing, Sarah laughing? Not all of it was sanctified laughing. It was just an honest response to this unfolding plan of God that, these, that this old couple, could, we could actually have children is what they're laughing at. But now they recognize it's true. God has done this. It says in verse 4 that Abraham obeyed God by circumcising his son Isaac when he was eight days old, just as God had commanded him. Abraham obeyed God's direction to mark him, Isaac, with the sign of promise, the sign that recognized God's promise that was done passively. Abraham didn't ask for it. God gave it to him, and this is why the signs applied in this way. He carries that sign of God's promise now throughout his life. It says in verse 5, Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Thinking of those important births in Scripture, I just went back to the different women who had children after long anticipations and important parts to play in the history of God's redeeming people. Of course, the birth of Jesus to Mary, Isaac to Sarah, Samuel to Hannah. Here, notice what Sarah says in verse 6. God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The way she's saying it here is celebratory. She recognizes how unusual this has to be, but how miraculous it is and how God has put his favor. It will be clearly God's favor upon her. Yes, people will laugh, but they'll know that this is the favor of God upon her because she could not do this. Then I was comparing this with things that Hannah said when Samuel was born and what Mary said when Jesus was born. Hannah said, My heart exalts the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. She recognizes her hand, his hand upon her and the benefit that her child would have for others. Of course, Samuel in the line of Christ himself. Then, of course, Mary, when she... Uh, learns of bearing Jesus. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. 
It's a beautiful picture attributing all the glory to God. In, in a different way, Sarah does the same thing. We know what Sarah's been through here. She says, God has made laughter for me in verse 6. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Who would have said to Abraham, and Sarah, that, to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Kent Hughes does a great job capturing this. Hughes said, And now new mother Sarah gave a joyous utterance that had the form of a son. There was laughter everywhere. The man and his wife laughed and continued to laugh as they held tiny laughter in their arms. Baby Isaac cooed and laughed. The camp chuckled out loud and heaven smiled. God had answered his promise to Sarah and to Abraham. We can count on God's promises even when we feel as though he has forgotten us. He hasn't. Now, we're going to shift from verse 7 to a less joyous outcome of the story, at least on face value. It has deep meaning, though. It's significant what happens here. With the heir of God's covenant promise now born by supernatural means, as God had forecasted, what of Ishmael and Hagar? Remember that relationship that Abraham and Sarah forced in order to fulfill the promise their way. There are human beings involved. Ishmael and Hagar, great pain involved in this whole relationship. But God shows great kindness and he answers his promise there too. But we'll see a greater illustration when we conclude this section. Look at verse 8 and you'll see the separation now that will develop between Isaac and Ishmael, between the one of the covenant and the one who is not of the covenant. And the child grew and was weaned. So this is Isaac growing to anywhere between one and three years old. We don't know for sure because weaning could happen any time in that frame. So let's say two years. And he's 13-ish when Isaac is born. So Ishmael would, be, Ishmael would be something around 15, 16, maybe even 17. He's a teenager. And in these days, uh, a boy that age would be, uh, it wouldn't be like a little child anymore, almost ready to be on his own. Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Verse 9 is very critical here to see and understand. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, that's Ishmael, the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. Now this is not the same laugh word that's been used earlier. And the tension comes right back into the story, into the limelight. But now in full force, because you have a, a teenager now who knows what he's laughing at. Here he's laughing in a mocking way. The word laugh here, uh, this has to do with making sport of something or jesting about something, mocking something. That's what he's doing, and Sarah notices it. Now, lest it be thought that we're putting too much on the passage, when you come to Paul's description of this in Galatians, he says this about Ishmael's take on Isaac. Remember, Ishmael's is teen years, this baby's born, He's only been, he'd been the only son of his father, the heir. No matter what Sarah would say, Ishmael knows, I'm the heir. But now this baby's born. But he's still thinking, I'm, I'm the heir, though. And he's laughing about that, no doubt. And Paul says of this instance, But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born, who was born according to the spirit, Isaac. So it is also now. We'll come back to that passage when we wrap around. But right now, notice that it's said of Ishmael's demeanor towards Isaac that he persecuted him. So it's likely this is just kind of 
typifying the way the relationship had gone for the first couple years of Isaac's life, that Ishmael was mocking this idea that this baby would become the heir. But this baby is the promised one that God was going to have his hand of covenant blessing upon. There would be Hagar also contending at times, this is the firstborn son. He's the one who inherits. So you have Sarah who, yes, there's probably some vindictiveness there. She's a human being. But there's also some defense, some self-defense about the promises of God and about the heir. Look at verse 10. So then, so she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. We go from that joy at Isaac's birth to discomfort about Hagar and Ishmael's resulting fate. It says that Abraham was displeased. This means he was vexed. He was shocked even. He was grieved by what she suggested. The thing was very displeasing to Abraham. He loved his son. He spent many hours and days with his son Ishmael. Only God intervening to tell him what he needed to do would cause him to follow Sarah's direction. Verse 12, but God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. God gives a promise of his grace towards Ishmael. He had promised that before, and he's renewing it now. But Ishmael's not the son of God's covenant promise. Ishmael's because they rushed ahead and thought they knew better than God in trying to exact the promise. But God is nevertheless gracious towards Hagar and Ishmael. Verse 14, So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar. Now there's reasons why he didn't give her more. If he gives her more and she goes out on, on a livestock and a horse and has more supplies, then Abraham becomes culpable potentially in the regions around. Um, this was a casting out, which was in an official, like an excommunication, that meant only what she could carry, water and bread, was allowable. So she puts it on her shoulder, and she takes the child, and she's sent away. Verse 14, and she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. It was a death sentence. Now, Abraham knew the promises of God. He didn't know how it would pan out for her, but essentially that's what it would be to cast one out. If God did not intervene, Abraham knew full well what would happen. But he also knew what God promised. Verse 15, and sure enough, when the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. He was languishing sooner than she was, and so he put, she puts him under a bush and gets a little bit of ways. It says she went and sat down opposite him a good way off. She knew death was coming. How far? About the distance of a bow shot. I happen to know that that's 15 yards about. Let me look let me not look on the death of my child. I can't watch this. And she sat opposite him. She lifted up her voice and she wept. And apparently, um, moaning or crying out himself or making some kind of appeal, Ishmael was also speaking. Then it says in verse 17, And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand. For I will make him into a great nation. This great gracious deliverance here now from sure death. 
Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. Ishmael's cry and his mother's despair, this attracts the compassion of God at this moment. And he renews the promise he had made towards Ishmael long ago. God rescues them and shows his grace and kindness to them. He sustains them and recommits what he has promised. Isaac is the son of covenant promise. The seed of the woman who be the savior of the world will come through Isaac. But God respects the place of Hagar and Ishmael, the place they have in this unfolding story of God's providence and grace. Verse 20, and God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Both the blessed seed of Abraham, but Isaac is the specially chosen one from whom the Messiah would eventually come. But even in Ishmael, we see we can count on God's promises even when we think he has forgotten us. Now, I mentioned earlier there are three layers of meaning to this historical, historical episode. First, on the human level, all of us can appreciate being people who know God's promised things and we're waiting upon those promises. We wonder, does he remember? We relate with that and we see his faithfulness in a reminder that he's not in the hurry we're in, but he will fulfill what he says. Secondly, we see this as part of the bigger picture that's unfolding in the Old Testament of preserving and continuing the seed so that Messiah would eventually come. But third, and I want to close here, this is where I want us to tie up what's, been, what's said in the New Testament about this episode, because we must gain this meaning because it's intended for us. There's a significance to this story that we'll visit. Paul refers to this in the book of Galatians chapter 4, and I'll refer to that in a moment. It's a way of illustrating the two covenants that we mentioned at the beginning of the service, the covenant of works in the covenant of grace. These two figures and their children represent those two covenants. And that means something to all of us that we have to consider. Because you are under one covenant to the other. One was made with Adam. One was made ultimately with Christ. The covenant of works with Adam in all his progeny and with Christ in all his elect, all his children. How do you know? Do you trust in Christ? So the two covenants, are you with Adam or are you with Jesus? That's the ultimate challenge. But let's look at it through the lens of the story. We'll see the covenant of works symbolized by Hagar and Ishmael, the covenant of grace by Sarah and Isaac. Hagar and Ishmael represent trying to be right with God through their own means, doing their own plan. Sarah and Isaac represent being made right with God through his promise and his provision, even despite us, all grace. In the first epistle in the New Testament written, Galatians, Paul is writing to deal with an issue that had crept into a Christian church. There were people in that church who were saying, yes, believe on Christ and you're saved, but you need to add to these things elements of Moses' law. Now, we respect Moses' law as revelation of, Jesus, of God's character, but it wasn't given to follow to be saved, but some were making it seem as though you've got to follow the law to be sure you're saved. You've got to add these things. So Paul's writing to say you're missing the point of God's grace. In fact, you're putting yourself under the covenant of works by doing this. So now we come to Galatians 4, and notice how Paul writing to a Christian church that had people there thinking they were saved by works, and what he does with the story of Isaac and Ishmael in that light. Galatians 4 verse 21, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Do you know what you're saying, people who think that we put the yoke of the law on people that 
trust in Christ now? Then he says this, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. He sets up the illustration for the congregation. Paul goes on, now this may be interpreted allegorically. Normally you should not interpret the Bible allegorically, except for when the Bible tells you to interpret allegorically. And that's, this is the case here. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, where the law was given, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. If you follow Sinai as a way of getting salvation, the law, you will be in the bondage of your sin still because you cannot meet the law's demands. It's a picture of the covenant of works recast there at Sinai. There's a gracious element for sure because when you rightly understand the law, you're like, I can't do this, and you go to Christ. That's the gracious element. of. But these people in Galatia were saying, no, no, you follow the law to be saved. But that's slavery. That's Hagar. Then Paul says, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. Sinai, the law, got to follow the law to be saved. The present Jerusalem with its temple, present in Galatians' time. They all think the same thing. The Jews of that day thought you had to follow this law to be saved. For she is in slavery with her children. Now Paul was talking about the modern Jews who are listening. Then he says this, but the Jerusalem above is free, the heavenly Jerusalem. She is our mother. For it is written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Then he says, now brothers, talking to the Galatian church and to us, like Isaac, you are the children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. What he was saying is in the church, there are people that are trying to make the Christians think they had to follow the law to be saved. Those who are enslaved like that will always persecute the grace lovers. They'll always try to put it on you. That's how it is now. That's how it was then. That's what he's saying. And he's using these two figures to show the two covenants. But what does the Scripture say, Paul says in Galatians 4.30? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Take it from the personal here. And cast out legalism. Cast out this idea that you can earn it. Get rid of that because you will only be enslaved by that. You've got to get rid of that. You're sons of the free woman. You're sons of grace, daughters of grace. You've got to throw out that. You can't keep them both. One's got to go. That's the separation there. It's a covenant separation. It's grace, it's the law, or it's the gospel. Which one do you want? How are you going to be right with God? The law or the gospel? You can't be right with the law and you'll be slave. But you can't have the law and think you're keeping it and still have good news. This is what Paul says throughout his epistles. This is the message of the Bible for that matter. And then he concludes this section of Galatians by saying, So brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave but of the free woman. This story then in Genesis that we have just studied, based on what Paul's saying, this, has, this illustrates important truths. Adherence to the law for salvation or belief in the gospel for salvation. Which is it? Which covenant are you under? Works or grace? The story is about trying to please God by means of the flesh, 
like Hagar in Abraham and Sarah at that moment, or by pleasing God through his provision of grace, ultimately through Christ. Ishmael is an example of trying to reach God on our own strength. Isaac is the picture of God providing access to himself through divine promise and provision. Fleshly origin versus supernatural origin. Man's will versus God's will. Ishmael is an example of man's will trying to accomplish God's goals. Isaac is a picture of the supernatural from God, the spiritual. Ishmael is the natural from God, the fleshly. Works versus grace. Ishmael represents Mount Sinai. Isaac represents the new Jerusalem, Mount Sion. One after flesh, one after special promise. Covenant of works, covenant of grace. Which one? Those are the two. Ishmael, he had a different standing under the bondwoman, and it was precarious in nature, it was shaky, and its duration was short. Isaac has a secure standing under the free woman, the woman of promise. His standing was secure and eternal. Law versus gospel. One is earned by self but unreachable. The other is is earned by another on our behalf and comes to us through promise by grace. Simply this way. One says, do this and live. The other says, believe this and be saved. That's the difference. Believe on me and be saved, Christ says. Earlier we read a couple sections from the Confession of Faith, and I think it does well to summarize what we've said in conclusion. In the first two sections, the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. Then it follows up, well, man by his fall having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, works, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offered unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ. I'll end by using Paul's words for us in Galatians 4. Now, you, brothers and sisters, here in Redeemer, you're like Isaac, the children of promise. So brothers and sisters, We are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Lord, what a profound passage with uh, deep meaning that we've just read and considered. Father, you are indeed our promise-keeping God. Great and precious are your many promises to us in Christ and fulfilled through Christ. Please strengthen our faith in your word. O Lord, you are indeed the God of grace. We claim no merit in our works of the flesh. We claim only your promise of righteousness through faith in Christ and his finished work. Lord, we are children of your gracious promises made through Abraham. And what a firm foundation that you have given us. You've given us this foundation through your word of promise. And we take our glad refuge in Christ. In whose name I pray, amen.